everyone, I'm Riyad Alkyol and this is Dignified Resilience, a podcast on fresh narratives on confronting despair, alleviating distress, and forging ahead. In this podcast, we hear from people around the globe at all stages of life and variety of industries and learn how to channel dignified resilience to survive, feed the soul to heal, and connect with others through inspiring compassionate actions and behavior. At the same time, I aim to grow a global conversation that seeks to better acknowledge different sociocultural perspectives on meaningfully weathering life's adversities and achieving well-being. Here is a noble and humane invitation for surpassing our old selves by learning about and from other people's moving forces and limitations for successfully overcoming affliction and ache. Remember, we have different lives, distinct pathways, cultures, and contexts, but we can find common ground in supporting dignified resilience anywhere. So let's go then. Hello everyone and welcome to Dignified Resilience. I'm so happy and um, excited that Professor David Livingstone Smith found some time to join us today. He's a renowned philosopher who has written widely on moral psychology, a professor of philosophy at the University of New England and author of the award-winning book, Less Than Human, Why We Demean, Enslave and Exterminate Others. He joins me today for a discussion on his latest book on inhumanity, dehumanization, and how to resist it. I believe the Kindle version is available now and hardcover is coming out on July 1st. So in today's episode, we will discuss processes and consequences of dehumanization, uh, what makes us humans susceptible to it, what psychological, social, and political mechanisms come into place and exist, or can encourage us to see someone as less than human. And as well, what makes us vulnerable to it? How politicians exploit it? What's the role of propaganda and the media in the process? And what can we do to resist dehumanization starting from ourselves? Um, In this book, Professor Smith draws on numerous historical and contemporary cases and also recent psychological research Um, addresses uh, horrific episodes of mass violence spawning from racism and that uh, Holocaust to lynching of African-Americans to the colonial slave trade and Rwandan genocide, uh, among others. So, and importantly, and why I'm particularly um, uh, happy or I'm excited to talk talk about this today is because of the urgency uh, of the moment in the United States right now. Because in the book that we'll talk about, Professor Smith also dissects the relationship between racism and dehumanization. And in the United States, now when the death of George Floyd, an unarmed 46 years old black man killed by police during an arrest in Minneapolis in Minnesota, sparked uh, protests across country, it seems more than vital to talk about uh, this book. And before I dive into conversation, I do also want to add that as a Bosniak myself, I found additional interest in reading this book, considering the horrors that happened in my country between 92 and 95. So regardless, again, of the background, I think a lot of people might uh, really find interest in reading this book, which is written in a way that's accessible to wide readership and precisely considering a political uh, conjuncture which is very morose in many countries around the world. 
I think that um, it's urgent to speak about dehumanization and how it functions. So that said, um, let's dive in. Professor Smith, thanks for being here with us today. Welcome to Dignified Resilience. There's so much going on right now in the United States uh, and there's the pandemic, but I do also want to start by asking you, how are you today? I'm okay. I'm, a, I'm okay as, as okay as any one of us can be right now. And thank you very much for inviting me to make an appearance on the podcast. Of course, thanks again. So let's dive in. Um, you start your book by describing the Deep South, the tail end of the Jim Crow era. And uh, you write how that era was organized around the idea that whites deserve the power and privilege. Um, can you describe that era and your family's place? Because um, from what I gathered and you write about it, it's those experiences as memories and stories that shape your outlook on the world and how you started being interested in learning about dehumanization. Absolutely, it's been, it, was, it was very, very important for me in a number of ways. So I was born in New York City and my parents moved down to Florida with me when I was uh, three or four years old. So I really grew up there. And I had very close relationship with my mother's parents who eventually moved in with us in Florida. They moved down from New York. So uh, I got to Florida in 1958 or 1959. I'm not a youngster. And uh, the deep South as West Florida was at the time was a horrifically racially oppressive place. It was in the air, it was palpable. You could see it all around you. You could see that the, the black people who lived in the town where I lived, Fort Myers, Florida, lived in dire, dire, dire poverty. Um, and racist ideas, very explicit racist ideas. No one was ashamed of these things. Nowadays, they racists hide, you know, their, their ideas. Uh, but it wasn't back then. I mean, those were, those were outspokenly expressed. So as a, as a young child, I had to make sense of this world around me. Now, I was very, very fortunate to have my grandparents, particularly my grandmother. So my grandparents were uh, refugees from, from Eastern Europe. They were both very young when they, they came here. It was long before the Holocaust, but they were fleeing from the pogroms. So my grandfather was from Belarus and my grandmother from Romania. And they were both, they both grew up in poverty, um, but they both were brilliant self-educated people. In particular, my grandmother who had to uh, had to leave school at the age of 14 to work in a sweatshop in New York City. Um, and, you know, was actually a very prom a promising opera singer and pianist, but she had to give all that up to put food on the table when her father abandoned the family. Uh, and, and she was deeply interested in the history and the present day realities of oppression both anti-Semitism, 
the genocide against Native Americans, the oppression of African Americans. Uh, and, and so she taught me about this and that helped me to make sense of the world I was in. And I carry that experience forward with me. So through the rest of my life until I found my way actually to this topic of dehumanization that was always in the background. And, uh, and, and I think it gave me a kind of insight into these matters because I, I encountered them in their rawest, most violent form. You say that dehumanization is extremely dangerous, but to resist it, um, you've got to be able to recognize it and understand how it works. Yeah. So uh, before I ask you to first define dehumanization as you, as you see it, um, tell us also why do you remind your readers that it is impossible to make sense of dehumanization purely as a political phenomenon because there is psychology, but also why it's not just psychology because there is politics as well? Yeah, okay, that's a great question. So I, I actually will have to start with the, the definition in order to make that clear. So I understand dehumanization. Let me rewind a little bit here. <laughs> The word dehumanization is used in lots and lots of different ways, both in the scholarly literature and in the vernacular. So it's very, very easy for people to talk past each other when they're trying to make sense of dehumanization. You know, If I mean one thing and you mean something else and we're using the same word, we might not notice that we're actually talking about different things. So I use the word dehumanization to mean thinking of others as subhuman creatures, as less than human creatures. And of course, the others are, are normally members of our own species, fellow homo sapiens. Um, so I, I have a very tight notion of dehumanization. And in that view, dehumanization is something that happens in our heads, right? It's, it's, it is a psychological phenomenon. It's, it's an, it's a kind of attitude, it's a way of conceiving of others. Um, okay, so the only field that has a substantial literature on dehumanization is social psychology. Social psychologists have been writing inten intensively about this since, oh, about 1999. I mean, there were earlier ones, but that's when it really took off. But the problem with that literature is that they there are a number of problems with that literature, but the problem of, liter of that literature that I want to concentrate on is they see dehumanization as purely psychological. So it's as though it just kind of happens. But in fact, if you look at historical examples of dehumanization, you find that that's not the case at all. That we dehumanize others, uh, because of influences that we've been subjected to. Now, these are of two kinds, and normally they interact. Normally, they're both there. So one is sort of embedded ideology. So systems of oppressive beliefs that have been around sometimes for centuries and are just ingrained in a culture, and you, know, you breathe them in with the air that you breathe. Whether you're a victim or you're oppressor, you absorb this. 
The other is propaganda. So we have people in positions of power, be they politicians or religious figures or just respected figures in a community or a child's parents that articulate these ideas. So if you can imagine then, what we have is these entrenched ideologies sort of they're always beneath the surface. And then these, which can remain latent for a very, very long time, can get inflamed by propaganda produced by people who want us to do harm to others. So what we have there then is a view of dehumanization as a psychological response to political forces. It's sort of at the interface between the political and the psychological. And that's, I think you can't understand it unless you take both of those components into account. So politics has to engage with our minds in order to affect human behavior. So we can't just talk about politics. We have to talk about what it is in us that makes us vulnerable to these destructive political forces. Similarly, our tendency to dehumanize others doesn't arise spontaneously in the human mind. Right. It has to be stimulated, it has to be provoked by political forces. That's, um, yeah, it leads me kind of to, to the next question. So you say that when we see another member of our species, we do see them as human at first, and you describe how it's theoretical, this dehumanizing belief rather than perceptual. So can you unpack a little bit for us how uh, you explain first that for most people, killing others isn't something that's easy to do. There, is this, there are these massive psychological barriers, and you touched upon a little bit about propaganda. Um, and um, ideology, which I will return to later. So explain to us how dividing humans into this races, into you know us, our kind and their kind, is the first step, as you describe, on the road towards dehumanizing people. What is, how, is, how is dehumanization connected with beliefs about race? Okay, race. If we look historically, at some paradigmatic examples of dehumanization. Let's take two. Let's take the Holocaust in Eastern Europe at the hands of the Germans. And let's take the lynching of African-Americans at the hands of white people in the United States. Both of those episodes involve what we philosophers like to call racialization. And I'll unpack that in a minute. So, we take the Holocaust and Americans generally don't really understand this. I have my students all the time ask me, why did the Nazis persecute Jews because of their religious beliefs? And I had to explain to them, it had nothing to do with religious beliefs. Jews were seen as a demonically inferior race, destructive, demonically inferior. And obviously the, uh, the, rac the racial oppression as exemplified in these horrible episodes of lynching in the United States, also involve race. So wh what I propose in the book is that, that race is almost always 
a central component of demonization or racialization, I should say, because most scholars who study race don't, don't actually, they, they believe that race is an invention. It's, it's a way that human societies carve up people on the basis of what they regard as significant differences motivated by conflict and the desire to oppress. So groups of people are racialized because this helps another group of people do terrible things to them. Okay, so if, if all that is right, as I think it is, then to understand humanization, we have to understand race properly. So what is it to think of a group of people as, as a race? Now, again, Mer Americans, I think, tend to be rather confused about this because of purely local, historically contingent circumstances. Um, and they, they associate race too strongly with appearance. They'll say, because of the color of your skin. Well, that's just false. There are plenty of examples of racialization that do not involve any even detectable difference. I'm Bosnia is a very good example, right? Many Americans would not recognize that genocidal episode as having this powerful racial component because of these local facts about how race works in the United States, right? So in my view, to racialize a group of people, that is to treat them as a race, involves two components. One is to think of them as fundamentally different from us, whoever the us is, right? Now, not superficially different, fundamentally different. That's why racial rhetoric often talks about blood. You know, it's in the blood that they have different blood than we have. Nowadays, people talk about people who know nothing about genetics generally talk about in the genes, right? So that's one component. They're other. They're not like us. They can never be like us. Second component, actually, there are three. The second is not only are they different from us, but they're inferior to us. As soon, I think, as you buy into the idea of race, you're buying into the idea of hierarchy, of superiority and inferiority. These things cannot be detached. That's one reason why I think the notion of race is so toxic. The third is that membership in this racial group is supposed to be transmitted by descent. You are the race that you are because of the race of your parents. And, and that's why there's this preoccupation with history and origins. Okay, so now if you think about that, you realize that the idea of race involves this notion of higher and lower, superior and inferior, right? So if you, you racialize a group of people, you situate them as lower, dehumanization just takes this further. So race per se, the idea of race per se is just to think of these others as inferior human beings. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there, there's a lot of rhetoric that usually goes around that they're dirty, they're violent, they're criminal, so on and so forth. When you dehumanize them, you, you, you push them out of the category of the human altogether. They're not just inferior human beings. They are subhuman creatures. Now I can 
unless you want to say something, I can go to the first thing you asked about in that complex question. Yeah, oh, I do want to um, thank you for um, adding nuance to, to, to that explanation. Um, as you mentioned, the European Jews who were as pale as the Nazis who persecuted them and how um, in the case of Bosnia, racialization happened between people who had the same skin color. And I, I specifically, I thank you for this um, explanation and the connection that you bring out because I uh, read recently there are discussions online how, you know, for example, Islam is not a race, but how Muslims as people can be racialized all the time in different geographical contexts in the East, in the West. And that is a nuance that is difficult for many Muslim people to understand because mm. they see things, see world through the lens of religion and how it should be. So I, I, I thank you for bringing that, that nuance up. And especially, I think what I found uh, very important in the clarification you brought now, and that is that uh, you explain how the, um, the Nazis, for example, or the people who, who do this sort of racialization see this struggle, see life as a struggle for dominance between races. And that hierarchy that you mentioned, I think is crucial uh, to, to understand why, when we think about this. So, um, so that was why I, I really, uh, it resonated with me because of my personal background, what you wrote there uh, for racialization. And I really, before you continue, I, I, it's related, but you wrote dehumanization is racism on steroids, which yeah. I thought is not necessarily what first comes to um, our mind in terms of how we think about it. So it's, it's, it's really beneficial, I think, for you, uh, for, for listeners and for readers uh, to, to understand how you also make the difference that mm -hmm. humanization is not racism, right? It's related, but one is not, as you say, the humanization is racism, which I thought is even more dangerous and scary. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, okay, we'll get to the, the, the how we get over the inhibitions, uh, but I think that before we get to that, maybe how about you bring us more nuance to the fact that you say dehumanization isn't always in the service of slaughter, that it can be oppression as well. I think that's very important. Yes, yes. No, yeah, it certainly is. So genocide is the extreme end. Right? And if, if you look historically at genocides, certainly everyone that I've studied, and I've studied a lot of them, have involved a component of dehumanization um, but dehumanization here's, here's a way to look at it dehumanization strange strangely enough is a solution to a problem and the problem is that it's not so easy for most of us to do terrible things to people that we have no personal gripe with Right. Okay. Someone kills your children, or something like that, and 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 of course, then you're motivated to to harm them. Of course, you are. But a great deal of violence is not like that. It doesn't have that personal component. And and harming others under those circumstances is is actually for most of us, unless you're a sociopath, really difficult. There's a what Hannah Arendt called 
animal pity that we experience with someone who is vulnerable. Um, so dehumanization is a solution to that. If we dehumanize others, if we see them, first of all, as subhuman creatures, it takes the, our foot off the brake. That is, it liberates aggression because just as very few people hesitate to swat a mosquito mm -hmm. or kill a tick, um, if, if, if the others are seen as really subhuman, that is kind of looking human, but being really subhuman on the inside where it counts, then it becomes permissible mm -hmm. to harm them. And um, that's where we want to be for the, for the answer to that question. Harm comes in many forms. It's not always killing, right? Harm can be exploitation, you know, using others' labor without compensation. Uh, it, it can be all sorts of things. Now, if you think about how we feel free to treat non-human animals, yeah, part of that is killing, right? But part of it is, for thousands of years, exploiting the labor of those non-human animals. Um, and so dehumanization is very often involved in sub-lethal harm. Racialized oppression, slavery, things of this nature. Right, and you used the example of the oppression of Black Americans um, during the century after the end of the American Civil War mm. as well to kind of just to connect the chattel slavery and this idea of oppression that um, is not just in the service of, of, of slaughter as well. And, and it, it was that dehumanizing beliefs, right, that many white people held. Yeah made this possible in terms of the horrific lynchings and, uh, and, and uh, horrors that you, that you describe, right? So um, is it then, like you say, it's, it's, it's a contradiction, but humans can believe in a contradiction in the sense that, uh, that people, we members of the same human race can still think of others as subhuman because as you say, it's, like what does it mean to be human, right? How do we include somebody into into seeing as as human? I thought, can we unpack that? Um, yeah, that's it's such an important component, um, and it's been so neglected in the literature. So uh, the the way to start is to reflect for a moment on what it what it's like to be animals like us. We are super 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 social animals. Uh, you have to go to the ants and the bees to find animals that are as social as we are. And of course, they live in much simpler ways than we do. So we, we live in large cooperative groups. Like you and I are strangers, but we pretty well trust each other. Um, and human beings get a great deal of pleasure out of sort of harmoniously engaging with others and, and find conflict a little bit disturbing, even moderate conflict. These are just facts about how we, we operate. So we are highly attuned to one another. 
And, and when we encounter one another, when we look at one another in the face, in the eyes, there is, I think, and there's a good deal of literature to back this up, we just can't help seeing human, <laughs> your, your mind kind. And the superficial differences fall away there, right? That's the side of the human face just very readily provokes that response. And, you know, neuropsychologically, our brains are built to process human faces differently from anything else. I mean, faces are really, really special. So when we encounter others, particularly up close and personal, we just can't help responding to them as our kind. And that's what I think the notion of the human is. When we think of others as human, whoever we are, what we're doing is we're, we are thinking of them as one of us, as our kind. And that takes many forms. So vicious racists like the Nazis saw, you know, Jews and Roma as subhuman and Poles as subhuman too. Uh, what did that amount to? Well, they they're not one of us. <laughs> they're not our kind. They're just fundamentally different. Okay, so there's this magical category of the human, the us, that when we encounter other members of our species, we just cannot help responding to them in that kind of way. But, but, most of what we believe doesn't come from our perceptions. It comes from what we're told. And that's just inevitable and normal. That's what makes us cultural animals, right? So if you think of all of the beliefs you have, the overwhelming majority of them come from what you've been told or what you've read. Um, and you'll accept these because of the authority of the people who give them to you. So a physicist tells you that the table in front of you is mostly empty space. Now it doesn't look that way, but you accept it. Yeah, I mean, the physicist is supposed to know, here my perceptions are leading me astray. It's mostly empty space. Um, in, in fact, if we didn't acquire most of our knowledge in that way, philosophers call it knowledge by testimony or testimonial knowledge, we are survival prospects would be really bad, right? We need to be told to avoid touching the hot stove and things of this nature. Okay, now that creates a problem because there are people who are ostensibly authorities, religious authorities, political authorities, scientists, who in the service of political agendas tell us that some group of people are, they might look human, but they're not really human, right? Black people in the United States are not really human, they're bees. Jews are not really human, they're vermin. Bosniaks are not really human, and so on. So, of course, when someone in a position of authority, like a Nazi race expert, you know, the very distinguished person, tells us that, we accept it, inclined to accept it. But then this creates a really interesting tension. On the one hand, I look at you and I can't help see human. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I've taken on board this ideological construction that you are really subhuman. And that means I see you at the same time as human and subhuman. 
And that has an extremely destructive toxic effect because it turns you into a monster, right? And an uncanny fusion of human and subhuman, a contradictory being. And so then suppose I, I suppose I am inclined to dehumanize Bosnians. Mm. Then you become terrifying. You, I, I see you as an evil, destructive being. It, 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 it really ramps up. I mean, dehumanization is already toxic, but mm -hmm. that tension makes it even more toxic. And that's so vital for understanding dehumanization. And I think that, um, I mean, you've touched upon so many important things. I feel every word you wrote in the book is, is so resonates uh, with what I know and lived. Um, but I think it's so fascinating in a disgusting way in terms of how essentialization is used for dehumanization mm -hmm. in the sense that it's not even what is outside that that is something inside of us that even though we might seem human and like how the, you know the, the the germans the german citizens had to demonstrate that they didn't have jewish ancestors and like you mentioned the jewish blood and that says that principle that it's inside or essence of a thing which determines who we are and i say this because there's also from um people I've encountered that personally as well, that, that I'm secretly some very violent Muslim, even though I may appear yeah. not to be. And there yeah. is this term called takia, which is used for us that no matter what we do, not obviously by I'm talking about mm -hmm. anti-Muslim racist yeah. uh, rhetoric. So I, I think it resonated so much with when, with what you also describe in the book in terms of this feature of essentialistic thinking, which is so, so important that it's some essence of a thing within yeah. us that is fine to us or sought after that determines it. And which leads me to, as you say, to the importance of language uh, in terms of, okay, so if we do see each other first as human and we have to get to the point of seeing each other as subhuman, that role of, as you mentioned, propaganda, and 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 you use in your book uh, so calls on Rwandan radio to exterminate the Tutsi cockroaches and um, the effect of that, or also you use, I think, also uh, Bosnian Muslims as well. I think that the, the demonization of Bosnian Muslims by the Serbian propaganda. Yeah. So tell us just a little bit more, again, about the importance, I think, of language, because I think people... Yeah don't understand how it doesn't happen at once but every time the usage of particular language mm -hmm. keep this flame go becoming mm -hmm. more um dangerous so what's what's the role of language again in this uh whole process oh yes yeah. so that that has so many aspects to it there are particular lang linguistic forms that encourage essentializing in the first in the first place so maybe we should just touch on that a little bit more so the idea here is and there's a lot there's a lot of psychological literature on this human beings have a propensity to think essentialistically that's just part of what it is to be a human being and what that means is 
we think that what makes a thing a member of the kind that it belongs to is some deep unobservable fact about it. Mm. And when it comes to social groupings then, racial ideas, and what makes someone the member of a race is not anything about their appearance, that's just a symptom. Mm. And it can be, it could be deceptive. That's how racial thinking works. Mm. It's something deep inside, in the blood, in the genes, whatever. And what that means is that when a group of people is racialized, and dehumanized, because we can, we can, this form of thinking applies to both. It doesn't matter what they do. So this seems to be very similar to this notion of, uh, if I remember correctly, Takia that you were talking about. So, so the crime is your very existence, right? <laughs> because the idea is you have it in you. It's just waiting to come out. Yeah, I'm hiding. It. You're just waiting to, to set off bomb someplace, right? Um, and, and just by the way, I think that in the United States, the category Muslim is well on its way to becoming a racial, a racialized category. So if, if I'm a if 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 I'm a an a, a, an anti-Muslim racist, there is nothing that you could do or say that could possibly count as evidence against my views, right? And so that's extremely, extremely toxic. Now, like I said, what, uh, when dehumanization happens, it, it, it tends to be inflamed by propaganda. And sometimes it's visual propaganda. Sometimes it's verbal propaganda. And there are cultural constraints on that. So when, in, in the book that I'm just finishing writing now, I've got another one, I talk a lot about the history of antisemitism from the Middle Ages to the present and how these ideas have been just remarkably preserved for seven, 800 years. And in the Middle Ages, most people couldn't read. So, it, and, and uh, you know, we didn't have mass media. They couldn't turn on the television. So often it was visual images that were used or traveling plays that represented Jews as evil subhuman beings and so on. Uh, but nowadays it's, it's mostly, I think, verbal propaganda and there the language really matters. Now, one of the things I talk about in the book is a pattern of propaganda that was first written about by a psychoanalyst in the 1940s who had visited Germany in 1932 and listened to Hitler and Goebbels. And he wrote this brilliant paper called The Psychology of Propaganda. And, and what he says in there is that there's this pattern for effective propaganda. The first step is to get people feel hopeless and depressed. Right, so we've been brought to our knees, our great destiny as a, as a nation or as a race is in the dirt, everyone's laughing at us and so on and so forth. Once people get into that state, which, which he described as an orgy of self-pity, then the politician changes the tune and elicits paranoia. Well, it's not really you, you see. It's not that you have betrayed the destiny of your nation. It's those evil people. 
you know, it's in Germany, it was the Jews and the communists, right? They're the destructive forces. And so then you get people are terrified because if they've accepted the first thing, they almost always go to the second, the paranoid state. And then the magical solution is offered. We will wipe these enemies away. You know, we'll restore our glory. We'll make Germany great again or, you know, whatever. And, th and this is just, you can just see it unfold again and again and again and again and again. Now, when you build into this racial and dehumanizing ideas, it's extraordinarily powerful. I mean, we, we are all vulnerable to this. And this is, this is why I say in the book that to, to fight against dehumanization requires fighting on two fronts. There's the public, political, social front, but there's also ourselves. You know, we have to understand what it is about our psychology that makes us so easily fall prey to, to, to this sort of propaganda, right? It's, it's no good saying, you know, the, the genocidaires are all monsters. That's just dehumanizing them, right? That, that's putting them at a distance. We need to see ourselves reflected in that mirror, at least potentially. Um, so look, one of the, the, the forms of language that encourages this stuff is what uh, people who study language, I don't write about this in the book actually, called generics. So often when we're talking about a group of anything, we use terms like a few of them or some of them or all of them or most of them. But there is also a tendency to leave those qualifiers off in certain circumstances and just talk about the Jews or the Muslims or the blacks. And that kind of language, that's what's meant by generics, invites us to essentialize the group particularly for saying something negative. The Muslims are terrorists. I mean, that's a really good example. It, it elicits this essentializing tendency. So that's, that's one thing that we need to be very, very, very vigilant about, very, very aware of. I think um, I, I have to add that as much as I enjoyed reading your book, it was not easy for me. Even this conversation, which I find so important, I honestly can feel my stomach turning like this because we're speaking about lived realities. Yes. We're speaking about real pain. We're yes. speaking about real slaughter, uh, yes. yeah. which manifests differently in different contexts, whether it's continuous oppression, oppression or systemic racism or you know, innocent people dying. Um, so, so I do want to add how, how truly important this mm. topic is because we are, this is not just conversation. Th these are real things happening or that happen or that in, they're in the process of happening. And I think you also write about it at the beginning or somewhere that it's, there's yeah. this increased dehumanization going on, uh, as well. And so when you hearing you now um 
got me to think about one part of the book, which was particularly difficult, but I, again, very important to, again, reread and face. And that is when you say that uh, dehumanization has motivational force. And that was, you know, in your book, you described, for example, when Hutu genocidaires, is, we're talking about Tutsi, uh, Tutsi cockroaches and snakes um, in, in Rwanda, it was not, uh, as you say, because they hadn't noticed that their victims were human beings. They had lived together and they worked together for so long, but it was the, 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 the genocidal killers saw the victims as humans because they were motivated to exterminate them. I think I, um, I had to pause when I read that because it's so, you know, we, so let's pause again and then let's, let's unpack yeah. it in the sense that it is the desire to harm others that leads to their human dehumanization, not the other way around. Oh yeah, it's, it's so important. That's how race works too. Um, and uh, can you unpack that a little bit and a little bit more? I, I certainly can, but first I want to say how excellent your questions are. Um, because you take this seriously, mm. it's not it's not a matter of mind games and and mm. just interesting talk. I, I think this is just so important. That's why I spend why labor at it. I think it's terribly important. It's going to be terribly important for the future. Thank you. I, I agree. Um, uh, that your book is a product of a decade long research, um, and, and 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 that I appreciate how you tie different. Uh, you know, psychology and sociology, that it's not just a particular niche, so that a lot of people, as I said, wide readership can kind of understand different aspects that go into whole this process and make it so subtle, but so powerful, and we don't see it. We don't feel it, as you see, unless we recognize it. So well, it's, it's really important that the, you know, the world isn't organized like a university with departments, right? It's a big mix. And to understand things like humanization, we have to we have to see it as lying at the interface between lots and lots and lots of different forces. We have to approach it in lots and lots of different ways and try to bring these things together. This is one of the things that makes it very challenging. So, yeah. So here here's what some people would say about dehumanization, which is totally false. Well, what happens is one group of people encounters another group of people and sees that they're different and then just thinks, well, because they're different, they must not be human beings. This, you hear the same story being told about race. Well, they're different, they're other, they have different color skin or they speak a different language or whatever. And so we think of them as a separate race. That's not how it works. Um, Dehumanization, so bear in mind that propaganda inflames dehumanizing beliefs, right? Even if they're there latent, embedded in the culture. Dehumanization is a method that human beings have developed over thousands of years to get one another to do harm. So, Come back to something you said really right at the beginning of this interview that, um, look, in the movies, it's easy for people to do violence to one another, to kill one another up close and personal. 
In reality, that's not the case. In reality, it's actually from, from most of us, like 95% of us, it's very, very difficult. Because as soon as we see human, as soon as we get this gut response, it, it kind of sh shuts down, shuts us down. It, it, it elicits inhibitions against serious forms of violence. Um, now, sometimes these are, the, the emotions are running so high that these are overcome, but nonetheless, that's the case. So to look at someone's, into someone's eyes and stick a knife in their guts is virtually impossible for many people. And for those who bring themselves to do it, it's, it's deeply traumatic and haunts them for a lifetime. Um, now that's a problem. It's a problem if you think, well, it would be really advantageous to wipe these people out who live over there, to take their resources or to abuse them, to slave them, to, 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 to rape them, right? So we have these great big brains, right? We can think that way. We can think, boy, if only I had their resources, you know, we could do really, really well. So that capacity to reason towards violence is in a kind of tension with the inhibitions against violence that we have in virtue of being the highly, highly social animals that we are. Dehumanization is one way that human beings have found to overcome that. There are other ways. You know, there is the use of mind-altering rituals or drugs or religious ideologies. There are all kinds of ways that people have figured out. But dehumanizing propaganda which plays on those psychological vulnerabilities that we have is one way of doing it. So in response to, to dehumanizing propaganda, which the idea is that it's to motivate us to do mm -hmm. violence mm -hmm. and to make doing violence permissible to us, to override, to disable the inhibitions we have. Mm -hmm. um, that's what drives the dehumanizing and the racializing process. Mm -hmm. So it's not like we notice people are different. It's that we are motivated to think of them as different in ways that matter for doing violence to them. Right, and it's, um, it's so important to kind of notice the dynamics. You mentioned uh, psychoactive drugs that create altered states and then kind of whether it's um, hallucinogens or alcohol that's used to, uh, to help those people in that particular moment. But then we come back to um, dehumanization and then I think again to ideologies the oppressive ideologies that keep, I think it's the start and the air that gives, I mean, the, the, the gas that gives kind of the flame that helps the flame. Because I think when I look at, for example, the, the, the ideologies that the lethal ideologies in, in Bosnia that led uh, towards that sort of propaganda, then dehumanization, then genocide, or even as you mentioned, um, here in North America, in that sort of context as well, um, it comes back to oppressive ideologies, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and really, the the scary thing about these ideologies is they don't go away very readily. They can they can stay they can stay around for 
literally thousands of years, they, they just kind of go underground a bit, but they're ready to be reactivated, right? I, I, would, I, would, I don't know a great deal about Bosnia, but mm -hmm. I would bet that the ideologies which were activated by the horrible, horrible propaganda that led to that genocide are still there. They're still there. They're just waiting. Exactly. And, you know, the right forces, and and there, it all happens again. Absolutely. Um, and I think that it's incredibly powerful how you also bring the nuance that those who dehumanize, especially also in genocide, that it's very highly moralistic, as you say. Um, we don't think about it usually, but but for me, it was very obvious. And that was like, even when a person believes, like you're right, that it's their moral duty uh, to kill others, it's often still difficult for them to do the killing. And so how powerful do these anti-human forces have to, how not powerful, how manipulative they need to be to catch our vulnerabilities as humans and to make this uh, manifest uh, in, in, in various levels of, of um, oppression, right? Yeah, yeah, just, just immensely powerful. This is the thing that I, I, I would really like to wake people up to. This is very, very, very potent stuff. So if we come back to the conditions under which people can readily do violence to one another, uh, the, the common factor in all the the ways that this gets facilitated is difference, or rather, I'm sorry, distance, distance. So I, I mentioned that it's really hard, if not impossible, for most of us to look into another person's eyes and plunge a blade into them. That's up close and personal. So the development of long-range weapons is really, really important in liberating human aggression. Um, but there's there's another way because you you know these, these these terrible events in human history cannot be conducted entirely in that way even now. So the other way is simply avoiding certain stimuli. So uh, in in Auschwitz there was a great emphasis on on not looking into the victim's face. Looking into the victim's face elicits the kind of response that would not allow these people to do their, their job. If you'll notice um, in executions, the victim is often hooded, blindfolded or hooded. So cover the face, cover that stimulus that elicits inhibitions against violence. So this is all perceptual, right? It's perceptual difference. Either get far away or blanket the sense organs from the other. Dehumanization takes it inside. It's not perceptual, it's conceptual, right? So if, to the, in situations where dehumanization really takes hold, and I, like I said, we're really vulnerable to this, particularly in the hands of skillful politicians, it's possible to look at the other and simply deny to yourself that what you see is real. So the dehumanized person is seen like a counterfeit, counterfeit human being. Sure, they look human, 
on the outside, but on the inside, no, no, no. There's sub deadly, dangerous, subhuman, monstrous, demonic creatures. And that's where then the moralism comes in because who doesn't want to rid the world of evil? And, and you see that and this is another reason why it's so misleading just to think of genocidaires as monsters. First of all, monsters are fictional. They're people. And they are deeply paradoxically, they think of themselves more or less always as doing the morally virtuous thing, exterminating these evil, corrupt, horrible beings. And I think that, um, so to, to again, kind of conclude that, so dehumanization is not, as many people might think, some sort of moral disengagement, right? That's-, that's kind of Moral engagement. That's, that's something that's totally wrong in the psychological literature. You don't become indifferent to others when you humanize them. You become very deeply morally engaged with harming them because the idea is this is the right thing to do. The people who promote genocides, I mean, some, some of them are cynical and, and aren't like that, but by and large, the people certainly that get their hands bloody think they're saving the world. Uh, maybe I should have touched upon this earlier, but where does humiliation come into this process? Now that we think about it, like, because there's, there's sometimes, and, and again, um, and I don't mean to bring back just Bosnian context because there's so much I think and so important to remember lynchings and, and public uh, lynchings that you, the rituals that, that you mentioned. And I think the equation of, and not the equation, but how you say that it was part of Restoring the order yeah. uh, was oh, so, it's brutal to read and it's so important to read. That's how I, I, I felt uh, while, while doing it. Can you tell us just, just a little bit more about the humiliation part? In sure, sure. Again, I think this is something which is often not properly understood. Um, humiliation is a very, very common component of genocidal, well, dehumanizing violence, violence that's provoked by dehumanization, which is often genocidal, but not necessarily. So let me give you an example. It, it, it was often the case in the United States that slaveholders would force enslaved people to eat out of the kind of the, the, the troughs from which the pigs were fed. So they had to get down on their hands and knees like animals. Uh, in the Rwanda genocide, and this is very common in genocides generally actually, women were, were often raped, mass raped, before being killed. And the, the, um, the purveyors, the perpetrators were quite explicit about why that was. It was to humiliate them before taking their lives. So why should humiliation play such a big role here? Now, some people use this to critique the idea of dehumanization. They say, well, um, you know, if dehumanization, if, if, the, if, the, if the notion of dehumanization is the, is the notion that 
when we dehumanize others, we see them as subhuman creatures like cockroaches. Well, then it wouldn't make sense to, to humiliate them. You don't humiliate cockroaches. I mean, humiliation implies humanness. Um, you, you, you might remember the um, example in the book I give of the Hadarene pogrom in uh, Romania, where these Roma were, were killed by a mob and a woman was interviewed and she would alternately describe the, the, the Roma as subhuman and use language like criminal, which is only applicable to humans. I mean, there aren't any criminal rats or cockroaches, right? So I think that's a very shallow critique. Uh, I think what's going on there with the, with the humiliation, first of all, you, you, the very idea of humiliation involves hierarchy right? Higher and lower. When you're humiliating someone, you're bringing them down to what you think their proper level is, right? Now, why should that be a component of dehumanization? Well, remember what I said, I think that when we dehumanize others, we see them as subhuman and human at mm -hmm. the same time. So it's something like this. You're nothing but a rat. You're pretending to be a human. Let me show you what you really are. Let me show you what you really are. I'm going to cut you down to size. Mm -hmm which is reassuring for the dehumanized because it strips them of their monstrousness, right? Their scariness, this human and subhuman at the same time. It, it gives the dehumanizer an immense sense of power mm. for that person. Remember, those who dehumanize others, at least in the most toxic forms that we're describing here, are frightened of them. They see them as a threat. So the, this, 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 this is reassuring and is an attempt to restore the proper order of things where animals don't pretend to be human beings. I, while I was reading the book, I was so curious what the conclusion is gonna be. I was like, oh, give me some happy end, give me some happy end, <laughs> which, uh, which uh, was um, hope, you know, hope last, dies last, but I want, but you, you, you're right that dehumanization cannot be stopped or prevented by just reminders that we're all human which is so defeating for me personally because i want to believe that i, I want to keep saying that but then again i i i, I study social science i studied I, I i read these books i i educate myself how it's not enough how it's not just that and then i get the tools i guess better tools to know how I can exist and how I think others think, how we can think and what we can do uh, to, to, I don't know, as you say, uh, resist uh, dehumanization and then everything that, that it leads to. So, so then tell us a little bit about uh, what you write is how, what, we need to, what do we need to do to block the processes um, those that we can impact politically, but also psychologically, to um, to stop dehumanization or starting from ourselves. Yeah, I, th I think our relationship with ourselves is is really important in this respect. But I'll explain why in a second. And the the sort of the the, the remedy or or the attempted inoculation is going to be different depending on cultural variables. So in the United States, the United States has certain sorts of issues that some other people don't have. 
say like Germany doesn't have. Um, so if, if I'm addressing Americans, uh, and this to actually to a great extent applies to everyone, um, a certain kind of education is important. And what I mean is real history because it's, you know, it's very simple. If you understand that your ancestors did these terrible things, and that's all of us, you know, nations are born in violence. Um, we all have blood on our hands if we look historically. Then you realize that it could happen again. Right, so that's that's really really important, and the the problem with the United States is that we've never been brought to our knees, right? Like so many other people have. So Americans can maintain certain illusions about themselves, with which are more difficult to maintain, um, uh, in uh, amongst other groups of people. So that's one one thing, and that's a function of the educational system. And believe me, the educational system just doesn't do that here. It just doesn't. I teach a course on race, racism, beyond, you know, at a liberal arts college. And the feedback I get most from students at the end is, I'm so angry I was never taught the truth about, about history. All right, so that's one thing. Another is understanding how it works. Understanding just that just by being a human being, you have vulnerabilities to being manipulated by propaganda and you've breathed in ideology, you just can't help it. If you're brought up in a culture, you just can't help it. And it doesn't matter if you're a member of the dominant group or the oppressed group, you're gonna still take it in. And so that's there and it's there, it's something that can be exploited. So understanding a little bit about the psychology there helps us to be vigilant, helps us notice when we're slipping in to being moved by a powerful political speech that's inflaming our, our passions. The third is external, and it's about political action. It's about securing, you know, a, a, a free press, freedom of speech, uh, and, a, and a press that is vigilant in monitoring dangerous propaganda which is always, you know, seeping around and it's even more difficult now with, you know, the internet uh, because dangerous propaganda circulates very quickly and, and very efficiently. Um, like virus, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's viral. We should look at it epidemiologically. Uh, now, the reason why it's the first two components um, is that Unfortunately, dehumanizers often have the most psychologically compelling stories to tell. In, in, in my previous book, uh, Less Than Human, I actually used the example of Bosnia and the, and the, the anti-Muslim propaganda. I mean, it's powerful stuff. Um, you know, fear and danger all these things, they move human beings um, just incredibly effectively. 
And so that's why this other dimension, this understanding of our own vulnerabilities and the understanding of our, our own history are, are very, very important because it's just so easy to get sucked into the other stuff, even, you know, even if, if we want to do the right thing politically. And I think it was, tell us how, because I think it's very, Uh, it's not brave, I don't know, from my context. Why is it important that we don't dehumanize the dehumanizers? Um, well, first of all, several answers to that. One is dehumanization is always an illusion, right? It's false. There aren't any fake counterfeit human beings. They're, those are fictions. Um, and another reason is it, it helps us to distance ourselves. See, when we dehumanize the dehumanizers, when we say, you know, Himmler was a monster, I'm Jewish, right? If we say Himmler was a monster, that's utterly false. He wasn't a monster. He was a, a human being. He probably loved his children yeah. and so on. We, we're, we're, we're saying, this guy is nothing like me. And in doing that, we're sealing ourselves off from understanding that, that we're at least in principle capable of either performing or endorsing actions like those undertaken by, 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 Him, by Himmler. So we, it, it really, it works against the attitude, nothing human is alien to me. And, and that attitude is very important to maintain both because it's true and because it's a safeguard. If you lose touch with that, paradoxically, you're more vulnerable. If, if you treat Himmler as a monster, you're more vulnerable to becoming one than if you see him as a human being. Um, that brings us a little bit, I think, towards the end or conclusion, but I do have a couple of things. Um, the first is, are you hopeful? If, can I ask that? Um, and, and in that sense, I mean, knowing everything that you also described and how it's so easy for all of us to, um, how we're all vulnerable to that uh, because of everything that you've described, then again, I mean, it, currently in the United States, we see that you know, protesters this time have already brought about some reforms to address that part of at least systemic racism uh, and police brutality uh, following George Floyd's death. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm learning always. I currently live in the United States, so I'm trying always to educate myself, but in different contexts as well. Uh, you, you tell us in that a little bit how we need to try to resist uh, dehumanization and stay vigilant about it. So how can we deal with that? I know there's no ha super happy ending, but give me some, give me, what, what do you think about all that? Yeah, yeah, okay. So uh, I, I like Cornell West's phrase, I'm hopeful, but not optimistic. Okay, and yeah. A happy ending, but when I say hopeful, I mean I want to push on to, to try and bring that about. Um, 
So the, the problems, the problem of dehumanization, one of the interesting things I think about my approach is that we do have something to work with. Mm. And what we have to work with is our gut level response to others as human beings, right? Which if I'm right, inhibits violence. Uh, and, and that just keeps coming back. And it's just paradoxical that it, it drives some of the worst forms of dehumanization by making months, but it's there and it's something that's available to us to prevent or to constrain dehumanization most effectively mm -hmm. and racism most effectively. What needs to be addressed are the problems that make these things attractive, right? This, these, the, the conflicts that make these things attractive. So I say early on in the book that one of the things that worries me tremendously is climate change. Because with climate change, we're going to have unprecedented refugee situation and, and competition for very scarce resources. And that will be a perfect storm for the, the most horrible forms of dehumanization and the violence that flows from that. But then again, if we could get ourselves to address climate change effectively, then we'll be preventing a great deal of that. Mm. Now, I've used a lot of the word if a lot. Mm. Of course, that's a problematic word. Uh, I guess really what I want to do Right. I don't see myself as having figured out what dehumanization is and how it works. I see myself as making a contribution that I hope other more creative and intelligent people than I am will take up and think about and work out strategies for dealing with, with this problem. I, I think I've kind of scratched the surface and I'm pretty confident in what I've said, but it's just the beginning. And one of the things that frustrates me a lot is that this topic just isn't taken sufficiently seriously. To find these solutions, we need to take it really, really seriously and put resources into it. And that's not happening. Absolutely. And um, I mean, we've talked about genocide, uh, but we've talked, to, there's, refugees, the humanization of refugees, you know, the, I, and I've seen that, we've seen it in Europe with the Syrian refugees, and it happens everywhere, it's, it's increasing, I don't, it wasn't like this before, from, from, from what I um, can remember in that sense, and as you mentioned, um, thank you, there are different contexts of dehumanization, it varies uh, in terms of United States or, you know, genocidal denialism that and genocidal triumphalism that we're dealing in Bosnia and Herzegovina yep. that's ongoing with the Rohingya with the Uyghurs etc etc I mean so there are as you say this there needs to be this sort of recognition and awareness of what it is the mechanisms and then people have tools hopefully and how to how to deal with it I um, and I think one thing that I appreciated from your book despite all the realities which are as they are and um, is that it's not natural 
to, to, to the human mind, which I appreciate it. And, and, and I, I, in that book, uh, specifically, I'm returning to the, to the present moment, for example, in the Ibram Kandi's book, anti How to Be an Anti-Racist, I really appreciated how he always talks uh, that racist policies are also not indestructible, that racial inequities are not inevitable, um, that these ideas- Take them apart. Yeah, it is, these racist ideas are not natural to the human mind the same way that we have to fight this dehumanization. So I want to um, kind of, uh, again, um, thank you uh, for the work that, that you have done um, for this contribution, for this conversation. I, I really hope that, um, I feel like there is so much we could talk about and I really truly look forward to that I, the new book that you're working on. It's on monsters, right? And, and that is, am I correct? Yes, it's called Making Monsters. So it's the more, so the, the, the book uh, that's out this month on inhumanity is for a very general audience. Mm -hmm. Not interested in writing for 12 scholars, right? This one's more detailed, a little bit more academic, mm -hmm. similar territory, but it, I think in somewhat greater depth. Okay, so um, looking forward to that. And before we end, um, usually at the end of the podcast, I do have something that's called five sweet questions, okay. which is unrelated to your uh, professional expertise, but which allows me also to connect with my guests and allow the listeners as well to see the people who are here in, in a different light. So the first question is, once the current pandemic emergency is over, even though I don't know who will end it and how it will be declared over. For some, it already is. Um, what is it? Is there something that you would not want to forget? Uh, yeah. Um, I, I guess, and this is going to sound a little bit dark. <laughs> this is not going to be upbeat. Uh, I, I guess what I don't want to forget is how how readily this can happen and and how we may be subjected to yet another in fact one that's worse so that the fragility of life i guess yeah um next question which of your traits have personality traits has been the most useful not the best trait but the most mm -hmm. useful yeah impatience it's not a virtue Tell how I'm impatient too, but how did you make it work? How is it useful? Well, I'm very, I'm very easily bored, uh -huh. and uh, so I, I, I don't waste my time on things to the extent that I would if, if I were more patient. Oh wow, that's a whole new way of looking at it. I can't wait to tell my husband about this. Oh my goodness. <laughs> okay, well, um, when you have thirty minutes of free time if you were able to have that, uh, to control it. Mm -hmm. How do you pass that free time? Oh, uh, in reality, I probably go on Facebook and mess around. Mm -hmm. uh, but in fantasy, I, I, uh, I practice the harmonica or, oh, or wow. practice my, I'm learning German, practice that. But really, it's messing around on Facebook. Mm -hmm. Ich spreche keine Deutsch. I cannot help. That's all I know. Uh, what skill or craft would you like to master? I'd love to be able to play a musical instrument well. Okay. Um, and the last one, are any of your friends completely opposite to you or are most of them similar to you? Um, 
I don't have many friends. Uh, I'd have to say, I have to kind of undermine the question a little bit. Most, most of my, let's say my acquaintances are strikingly different from me. Um, and I like difference a lot. I actually like hanging out with people who are really, really different than I am. Uh, but the people who I would, those few people who I would consider my friends have deep similarities. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Uh, you changed my life by telling me how impatience is such a good thing. Right? <laughs> so I will not forget this conversation for many reasons. Uh, it's a new milestone, but again, uh, thank you so much for finding time to uh, be with us and share some of this expertise. Again, uh, it's for me personally, it was incredibly, um, it was difficult, but uh, so important to read. And that is why I wanted, and I was so excited to make this conversation and to urge others to read because it's very readable uh, and it's uh, done uh, in a way that makes one just really want to dig more um, and 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 try to understand in a very tangible way um, how how these very dangerous processes occur. Um, is there anything that you would like to share with our listeners at the end? Um, I guess um, what I'd like to share with them is how how excellent an interviewer you are. Um, no, really, this, this was, you asked all the right things in the right sequence, so I can use this to explain things to, to people. And what that means is, is you read seriously. Um, and uh, I, I hope it gives your listeners a sense, I, I'm sure it will give the listeners a sense of what's in the book, what the book's about, and hopefully inspire some of them to to read it and take it equally seriously. Thank you so much for that. I truly appreciate it. And I take things seriously, but this hits personal uh, chord. Um, so that's why I, on various levels. And so I, again, urge everybody to, to read it and follow your work online on Twitter as well. And uh, I'm sure there will be more events coming as the book comes out. So. Uh, thank you again, and um, stay well, and talk to you soon. You too. Bye-bye.